but they were able to pull it off with all local players. Yeah. Because the cohesion of the team and everybody, they even said it, we did an, an extra podcast yesterday where the two of the star players explained that people took on different roles. And nobody was like, ah, I'm not sure I can do this. No, everybody took on the role they were suited for, most suited for to win. And why do I bring this up? Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Convos. I'm your host, Diego, together with my co-host, Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc, welcome back to August, August 1st. Wow. Time just flies when you're having fun, I guess. So without further ado, first, we have to give you a heads up. As you can see, the scroller, the ticker below, we have migrated to youtube.com slash convos. That means that all the Social Confos episodes can be found on Confos on YouTube. But don't forget to follow us on Instagram as well, because we have started with IG, with Confos, and we hopefully will continue in August with some regular updates and some regular content updates, both from the Confos pages as from our pages as well. We are already at episode 124. And we're doing a batch of episodes where we have no guests. That might come to a close pretty soon. So we're enjoying this ride and enjoying the fact that we get to talk a little bit about topics that are sometimes not the most general topics you would talk about. So when you think of national identity and patriotism, Diego, what would the first thing be that comes to your mind from your perspective? So when I hear that national identity and patriotism, let's just focus on the first part first, national identity. I think it's, you know, the location or whereabouts you identify most with or you got brought up or you basically live and work. And if you have, or if you have a born relationship with that location, or if it's something that you grew into the later stages in your life that's totally dependent on you and some people have very strong roots not just national identity but also ethnic identity going back to even historical roots but coming back to national identity i, I would say it's the place you identify with most in a empathic sense but in a more governmental official sense is basically where you have your passport so where you and, have your passport. Okay. Go on, go on. Yeah. And to connect this to patriotism, basically we, we were looking for a different word because we came out with pride first, the pride for your country, the pride for representing your country, basically the loyalty you have or the devotion that you express through it. It's a mix between, yeah, you have the formalities and also the feeling that goes with it. So those are two things how I approach it and view it. Okay, you can go away, you can go quite far with this. So first off, there's the saying, you rather have a good neighbor than a faraway friend. And that also ties to the concept of like the, the culture and the identity. And I think it's interesting because 
we are taught so much about the globalized world, but then especially when COVID struck, there was kind of the sense like, okay, I, I need to have a fixed space. I have to have something that I call. And that's often where identity starts at home. It's, it's the parents you grew up with, but it's also kind of the occupation that you have. That's the, that's like the basic civilization. We talked a couple of episodes about, about the, the pyramid of Maslow. It kind of it comes back down to the identity part. And, and why I found this really interesting is because throughout your life, you get a lot of situations where you get to deal with, with, with pride and national identity. The reason we didn't go for pride is because pride now, it has a different kind of connotation at the moment than patriotism. And this topic came about for several different reasons. I think the first reason it came about, which I didn't realize until much later, is my background in social science and the IBM research that was done by Geert, done by Geert Hofstede. So Geert Hofstede was some... Also another interesting topic yeah. that we often refer to, a module yeah. or framework, right? Yeah. Was, was, uh, was a researcher at IBM, and it's not considered scientific research, but it is considered a very important framework in the difference in national culture. So the difference between cultures from different countries when it comes to feminine or masculine culture. So it's more a masculine society where men have to be men, and there's a very stereotypical role of the men in the household and in the men in the workplace, whereas a feminine, more feminine culture, that's more, that's more equally di distributed. There's more things that men do that are considered traditionally considered women roles and more things that women do that are con traditionally considered women roles. Then you have the power distance. I think the power distance is one of the more important ones. Whereas with a, countries with a high power distance, like somebody who is considered more powerful or in a higher position than you is considered up there and others are considered a little bit below. So for instance, if you would have a country with a high power distance, that would mean that the CEO or the managers of the company, they would have a separate parking space. They would have a big, how would you call it, a big, bigger office. Those kind of things, better, better wages, those kind of things. Then you also have some risk avoidance or uncertainty avoidance. And there are national cultures that have a low uncertainty of a risk avoidance, a low risk of low risk. Can you, can you bring it up a little closer that I can, that I don't pull sure. in my words. So the tradition was uncertainty avoidance, masculinity power distance and individualistic collective. So if uncertainty of finance, low uncertainty of finance is you don't, you don't worry too much about uncertainty. Whereas a high uncertainty of finance, you're like very worried about being in a situation where everything is uncertain. Yeah, you're not willing to take risk. And I, I brought up, basically, you can just go to the website, to the Hofstede website and I this got is this beautiful. during my time right. in the university and okay. I brought up Suriname, the Netherlands and Singapore just to have three different distinct regions and cultures. 
to have a comparison as you are going through the different okay. categories. Let's 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 go for individualism, collectivism first, because low individualism is high collectivism. Collectivism being like you do everything as a group and you do everything together. High individualism is, I mean, you're on your own in society. Yeah, so, basically, so you can see that with Orange, yeah, yeah? the Netherlands. Yeah. It's very individualistic. Okay, so so let's let's go for and then long term. Orientation, short-term orientation was also a very important one. Indulgence is kind of new. Long-term they expanded with that, yeah. So new, but let's let's start off at power distance. So as you can easily see in the Netherlands, it's very very common to refer to somebody who has a higher status than you by their first name. It's not frowned upon. You're you don't you don't have that like the person that you're or you're working above you or your boss is kind of. It's not like, oh my God, it's my boss. There's nothing I can say. Whereas yeah, it's basically a very personal level. <laughs> in, in this, you can see the scores. 100 is like max. 85, it already shows you how power, high power distance you have. So for me, first of all, I'm male. Secondly, I'm quite tall, which is also like a threat for some reason that people <laughs> connect with, with power distance. And I'm kind of light-skinned for for sure in, in Suriname even though I'll back into there yeah even though if I'm in the Netherlands considered a person of color <laughs> no no I'm considered no I'm considered a person of color and I'm in the Netherlands when I'm in the US I'm considered Hispanic so definitely there's enough color there for me to be considered a, a different race but when I'm in Suriname it's, it's I'm I'm light skinned so those three threats already People in general are very afraid, even if I'm very approachable and flexible about it, they are already very afraid to say certain things. You really have to get it out of them. So the very, the, the, the high power distance is something that really in Suriname, there are very few companies that have a company culture that break through that. It's really hard to break through it. The individualism is kind of interesting because Suriname scores a little higher than I would expect because I still consider Suriname a very collectivist country. I, I think it Compared comes with the Singapore, younger, younger generations, generation. especially. Yeah. I think the, if you look back 20, 30 years ago, the score would be much lower. But with the rise of, you know, the Gen Z and the exposure to especially Western media, yeah, it has gifted that, that yeah. a lot. It's much less than, than, than Asian countries, I think, which are yeah, much definitely. more collective. Also, cool. African countries in general are also much more collective. Not all of them. The Western. Oh, yeah. Let, let me bring up English. something from Africa, Kenya. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. That would be interesting. Yeah. Oh, Kenya is yeah, orange now. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, Kenya kind of already shows that it's much more collective. So, Singapore, Kenya are stereotypical Asian countries where there's a high power distance, but still Suriname is much higher in power distance than even those countries, but you see that those are more collectivist countries. And then when you look at masculinity, femininity, then you actually see that Suriname is kind of moving towards a Western kind of mindset along that line, but it's still much more, twice as masculine as, as the Netherlands. I mean, in Netherlands, it's kind of normal for, for men to say like, I'm going to be the stay-at-home dad, and I'm going to work from home, and I'm going to clean in the home. And that's kind of a discussion that I have with, with my wife a lot of the times. The first thing I told her, like, 
there are certain things that you might consider normal in Dutch culture, which I'm Surinamese, so it's not going to be normal in Surinamese culture. And when we were just together, like within the first year of our relationship, these are things that I really had to fight through with her to say, like, listen, you might expect this for if you have, if you would have a future Dutch husband, these are things that he might do that a future Surinamese husband just won't do. But then there are also instances where I stray away from certain masculine activities. So it's not fully that I'm fully. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean you're more manly, but it's more like the category of activities that you would associate with more blunt and straightforward compared to a more caring and nurturing environment. The the idea as well for masculinity from from a relationship perspective is, and we make fun of this a lot, when, because recently something came out about like you have to earn at much this at least this much this amount of money. Oh yeah, the meme. To, yeah, it, it's kind of it blew up on Facebook, especially in Suriname, because people were offended by the fact that that the woman said like, "Hey, listen, if you don't earn this much, there like there's always and she also made a case there is always love, but I, I genuinely the chances are very very small, very slim, but but." People like to misinterpret that message because she didn't say like it would never, never happen. She just said like, hey, financially, I, I need a husband or a, or a partner that at least can provide for me, which is a very masculine op- opinion or approach. Whereas in Suriname, for instance, we generally do consider that the man in the household is the breadwinner. Yes, even, the main provider, even, right? Even though that we get, we're getting much more equality in the workforce when it comes to gender, it's still considered that the man is the breadwinner and he's the main breadwinner and he has to bring in the most money, which is also a mental health issue when you have a Surinamese man who actually earns less than his wife, because this becomes a talking point somewhere in the relationship. It, it puts a lot of stress on mentally on that man to say like, hey, how can my wife earn more than me? And even though the wife may, might not care, it's still from the outside perspective, from society, there's still this yeah, uh, of, hey, you're it's, the man. It's culturally also. ingrained, basically, how yeah. you've been grown up, that you exactly. are supposed to be the, the exactly. main provider, the protector, the, and you go get, out there in the, in the forest to hunt. <laughs> yeah. And then we get to the uncertainty avoidance and there it this, becomes. This like, has a huge discrepancy yes. with. So, and, and this explains what's going on. Actually, for interest's sake, let's remove Kenya and put in Argentina. All right. Give me a second. Moving Kenya. And get Argentina. Argentina. So Argentina is orange. Yeah. So you can already see the similarities when it comes to uncertainty avoidance the similarities between Suriname and Argentina. Why did I bring this up? Because I think it's very important that there is some socioeconomic background into this as well. Because there's a high uncertainty of finance because of the financial stability of the country as well. I think that plays a major role. Yeah, if if you want a more in-depth insight on the state of Argentina, we had a conversation with Nacho He's from Argentina a few months ago, and he's basically told us the, the affairs, how it is in Argentina right now and the ridiculous inflation rates. Basically, we have it better than Argentina if we look at the 
inflation and rates Argentina is not the only one because Paco yeah. de la India, Paco de la India, when he told us the bear run with Bitcoin story, he also mentioned a couple of African countries that have been going through a mess. Could, could you elaborate on who, who Paco is? Because yeah, we, we met we him last get him week. In. Yeah, yeah, I think we should get him in as a guest. I think that's the best best way to introduce him. But but I think the the interesting part here is that the uncertainty of finance is, is, is really high. People are not going to take stupid risk because it could cost them their life, basically. And the consequences of, of making an, an, a move that's uncertain in a situation where you're just surviving, you're not going to be able to. The, the, the risk is too high. Yeah, that, that goes to... Basically, it plays into why so many people opt in to work in government jobs in because it provides a degree of certainty that you'll be taken care of if you, if you just show up in, compared to the more Western countries that basically kind of encourages entrepreneurship, taking risk, try to do this. But that's because the whole infrastructure in those countries is to a certain level already of development. So people are in a better position to take risks, I would say, in, in a cultural, national sense, coming back okay, to the national so identity. What does the zero minus one mean? No, no data, data or no, no data? I think the last two categories, especially indulgence, I remember long-term orientation was there. Yeah, long-term was indulgence there, but it is, wasn't the, but the indulgence is definitely... It, it's a new one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it's a la lack of data or not enough data to get a a score. Yeah, that would make sense. Okay, so this but is kind it, of it, it, yeah. if you had to guess, if if you if you look at the similarities between Argentina and Suriname, I I would, would say the low. long term orientation would be would quite be low. low as well. Yeah, would be low. Would be low. Definitely. So, I think this gives us kind of a basis of the talking points that we're talking about. As into when we talk about national identity. It's a starting point to look at the national culture, but the national culture isn't everything. So, and let me kind of go to the second area of interest, why I brought up this topic. And that has to do also during my studies, I had to choose between the economic benefits of the Olympics for the city that hosts the Olympics. That's, that ended up being the, the topic that I chose specifically chose to to write about the paper about but the other option was the, the orange feeling like in in sports in the netherlands the color orange is kind of the color of the dutch right and it's a really interesting thing because i don't really think maybe jamaica a little bit with yellow but i don't think there's any other country in the world when I think Jamaica, I think of green and black <laughs> first. Okay, that's interesting. For me, it's yellow. yellow. The, the sprinter always, always used to have yellow. But there's no country in the world where the country is symbolized in sports by just one singular color. I can tell you one. New Zealand, it's black. But black, black. Yeah. Yeah, they're all black. They're, they're also called... They're national, like, rugby but, team. But... New Zealand isn't yeah. as big in the world of sports. No, no. Like there are certain but, sports that they're big, the biggest in the world. Yeah, uh, but, but black but, is very prominent there. But black is very prominent. Yeah. But I think the orange feeling 
And I don't know if, if we're New Zealand, it isn't ev- in everything in all sports. I don't know enough about it. Like if it's in athletics, if the New Zealand soccer team also plays with all black. So it, it's definitely when it comes to the rugby. The, it's I'm definitely sure. the, the biggest biggest sport is black. Biggest, and yeah. a lot of the branding, like the, the national plan, yeah. the Depern, is also colored in black and white. And I think it also gets less gravitational pull because of the fact that the colored black isn't that like. Yeah, it's, it's monochrome. Yeah. So yeah. if you would go to a Formula One event right now, because Max Verstappen is the is the number one Formula One driver at the moment, you will have like a sea of orange. If you would go to a, so- a football or soccer event, depending on where you are in the world, only basically the Americans call it soccer. But if you would go to a football event, like anywhere in the world, and the Dutch would be playing, you would see a orange. sea of orange. Yeah. I mean, again, the the French always also have it with Le Bleu. I was also wearing blue, but it's it's not as prominent in every sport. No, because orange is not that a common color if you compare the national flags. What flag, even though the Dutch flag doesn't have orange, they took ownership of orange. They took the to the, ownership of the royal family, right? Because of the royal family. So yes, the, the royal family. And the shield exactly. and, and, uh, and the lion. And you, you'd say no country, basically. You... Blue, red are, I think, the most prominent colors if you look at country colors. Yeah. Blue and red. And green yeah, to a lesser extent. It has extent. really been an embedded. And also, it goes further than sports in the sense that they also celebrate, like when they celebrate King's Day, it's also full orange. Yeah. So it's really a national color, right? It, it, it has a lot of historical weight to it as well. It's, it's a very prominent culture. And it goes further than people think when I think of this culture, because Heineken, while Heineken is not orange and is never connected to orange, Heineken as a Dutch brand, they actually, what they do quite strongly is they're very connected with sports. So there's often a Heineken house at the Olympics Mm -hmm. and embedded and so it's kind of this national culture that gives about like, this is our identity. And it is interesting to see like how other countries approach this. We talked about Les Bleu, the All Black, New Zealand as well. So there are definitely cultures that have a similar concept, but none of them are as strongly embedded as the Dutch with orange. And if you move to the US, you will definitely see that level of fandom on a regional or a state-based scale, or even a city scale? Well, in the, in the U.S., it's more related to the politics, right? It's either red or blue. No, but I'm, I'm, going, I'm going a little bit further with sports and, and, and really a sense of belonging and identity. And that's much more connected to your, your localization. And it's interesting yeah. because... because you can have you the, compare a, like, a country like the Netherlands versus 50 states of the U.S. because so it, it's more fragmented, that. right? No, but the, the reason I bring this up is because another reason we got into this topic is in the, in the late 90s, there was a movie quite popular with one of the Wayne's brothers called Celtic Pride. And Celtic Pride was this movie about two diehard Boston Celtics fans. And you have to imagine Boston is 
Celtics is green. Everything is green. Yeah, it's Celtic culture. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it so that's why I bring it up as well. And the movie is about two fans, Celtics diehard fans, that end up kidnapping a, a opposing player. So they are so into their sports fandom that they, and of course it's a comedy, they kidnap like the star player from the other team. And that's what the movie is about. And that's also part of their pride. So that's what's originally why I came up with the name pride instead of patriotism. But then pride is now much more connected to other things. So we ended up with patriotism. So why do I bring these two topics up? It's because we just had a really record-setting, successful sports weekend with Suriname. We had a situation where we haven't been in decades where Isama Singh just won the 100 and the 200 meter sprint at the South American Games. And in spectacular fashion, breaking the youth world record for the 100 meter sprint. So there's a bit of a story behind that, which I'm shortly going to explain to give a little bit more context. Yes, please, because I'm not that first. Okay. I think I saw some people share it, but. Oh I yeah, it, it was massively shared, and that's why I'm I'm getting into this. So, Asinga, basically, his parents are two Olympians. So his dad is Tommy Asinga. Tommy Asinga still holds the Surinamese record for the eight hundred, the four hundred, eight hundred, and fifteen hundred meters in athletics, and participated for Suriname in three Olympic games in '88 in Seoul, '92 Barcelona, and '96 Atlanta, and his wife and the mother of Isam was a Sambian sprinter who also participated in multiple Olympics in the 92 and the 96 Olympics. So just imagine two Olympians meeting at the Olympic Games, getting two children, a, a son and a daughter. The daughter's a little bit older, is also into athletics, is also a professional on her way to become a full-time professional athlete. And the children had to decide. Basically, they grew up their whole life in the U.S. Their dad is from Suriname. Their mother is from Zambia. And they wanted to get the Surinamese national, nationality to compete for Suriname, but also to compete for South America. That's something that Isam revealed that many of us, we didn't think about that. But Africa is kind of well known for their athletes. Yeah. South America must last, like much, much less. So aside from Isam also saying like, hey, listen, I came to Suriname so often. I came with my dad. I love the country. I want to do something back for the country. But also for South America saying like, we don't have a lot of South American athletes that really stand out or in swimming, definitely. Bruno Fratis, I think, is, is one of the top swimmers in the world. And there are definitely some others. And Brazil is big. So there are Brazilian athletes who compete at the top level. But most of the South American countries, especially in athletics, we don't really count. Up until this weekend, past weekend, we never had a, a South American sprinter run 100 meters within 10 seconds. Now we have three. And Isam was the fastest of those three. I want to bring up our pushback, maybe a more controversial takes. So they grew up in the U.S. from what I hear, right? And that's correct. 
do they have the Surinamese nationality or the U.S. nationality? Is that the- they have a sports passport, which has been introduced, I think, five years ago or something, or maybe a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, which allows people from Surinamese origin to compete to on represent the, the country yes. if you have that. Okay, that yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So I would. The, the way I see it, just looking at it objectively, it's if you're competing in the U.S. or the more populated locations, you are swimming between the masses. Whereas if you represent a lesser, a smaller region or a lesser known region, your name becomes more prominent, right? It, it, it gets more recognition. People, because you represent not only the country Suriname, but the whole of South America or Latin America, you basically get lifted up for that whole continent. So that that might be a strategic choice as well, compared to if you would compete in the US where you have tens or hundreds of people that compete on that same level or better because of the, the situation they have there. So that's, okay. that's kind of how I'm reviewing it. It's, it's just true. from it's hearing true. What, your story. What, what Timothy says, Big Fish, small part. But here's the thing though. Isam is the fastest high school athlete ever, even in the U.S. That's something to consider. Another thing to consider, the last time somebody made it to Olympics finals and wasn't born in Suriname was Anthony Nesty. Anthony Nesty was born in Trinidad, competed for Suriname, won gold and another medal this Olympics after that doesn't get any recognition aside the biggest indoor stadium being named after him after him ends up becoming the swim coach for the US men's national team now the assistant swim coach and is at least five years in a row the best NCAA coach in the US and we don't do anything with it like we post about it but we don't really understand like that he's basically the, the biggest person in men's swimming like Globally, like we don't understand that. Leticia Frisda still holds an uh, athletics record regionally for, I think, the 800 meters, which has been there for 30 years. And she doesn't get the recognition locally as well. And this is exactly where I'm going because I'm bringing this up because not of Asenga, who is definitely, he's 18 years old, by the way. He's 18 years old. He beat out the biggest U.S. contender in the 200 meters this year. He is the fastest youth athlete in the world ever. So this is somebody that we have to understand that we're going to treasure him for the rest of our lives. As long as he's competing, like he's always going to be like one of the contenders. Whether it's at the Olympics, whether it's at the Pan Am Games, whether it's at the South American Game, he's always going to be the biggest contender. He runs 100 meters about literally a second faster than the, the current national champion. Just just to put in context, how extreme. Yeah, right. That and it, this a second, it's a long it's a time and if we're taking swimming and athletics. Yes, it's, it's, it's a lot. So... We have to embrace that, but it comes back to the the identity, the national identity. And the reason I bring this up, because 
we are also quite invested in our national football team. And with a football team for the last three, four years, really, we have been pushing to get professional players that play in England, play in the Netherlands, play in Belgium, play in France, the big European competitions, Turkey, whatever, even Israel. We've been trying to get them to Suriname to play for Suriname. And the biggest issue that we have, and I think that's why it's easier for individual sports than for team sports. The biggest issue is that we have is when they all come together, they don't have enough time to get yeah, to used to each other. practice with each other and get to know them. And so far, and all of the coaches, yeah. yeah, so far, all of the coaches, all of Surinamese diaspora play a certain system, which is called the Ajax system, which is one of the most renowned clubs in the Netherlands. And they play a certain system, a certain kind of game where that's kind of what all the, the coaches play when they, they, when they coach the, the, national, the national football team of Suriname. And it doesn't translate into winning anymore. I think that's the biggest problem. So when Dean Jorge came, there was a big boost, a massive boost. And after that, no other coach has been able to replicate it which kind of makes us anxious. We're worried. We don't fully comprehend or understand what's going on. And when we don't fully understand what's going on or can't comprehend it, we get agitated and angry. And if, if you had to relate this back to the, the Hofstede, is it the risk thing? No, it's a different style. It's, it's, it's a collectivist style of play. So you have to understand in sports, in Suriname, it's a very... Even though it's a collectivist thing, it's also a higher power distance. So we might think it's an individualistic thing, as in the leaders are individualistic, which is not the case. It's much more of a power distance thing where there's such a respect in hierarchy between the person who's on top and the person that's down there. And for some reason in diaspora, this also plays a role. Because we are constantly looking like we need to get the best player that plays on the highest division in mm. Europe is more important to us as, as fans than it actually is that the team fostering the, the, the local talent and get no, no, has no. synergy. You don't have to foster. It's about the synergy of the team. Yeah, yeah. I mean the synergy, fostering yeah. the synergy. Yeah. And why do I bring this up? Because what also happened this weekend is that the men's national volleyball team won the Caribbean Cup for the second straight time. And this men's national team won the Caribbean Cup with a team of players that all play locally at the moment. They all play in the local competition. Whereas other teams from the Caribbean brought in star players that play professionally in European leagues to strengthen the squad. And we did that previously as well. It just happens that those players who played professionally abroad have been here, came back before COVID and didn't leave again. Right. But the cohesion of the team, and it was almost like they played with a chip on their shoulder because part of the team went, already went through the process in 2018 of winning a Caribbean championship, which was the first time Suriname did it ever. But they were able to pull it off with all local players. Because yeah. the cohesion of the team and everybody, they even said it. We did an, an extra podcast yesterday 
where the two of the star players explained that people took on different roles. And nobody was like, ah, I'm not sure I can do this. No, everybody took on the role they were suited for, most suited for to win. And why do I bring this up? Because I spent a lot of time on sports, but it's, it's kind of a bridge to where we are as a country. We have to figure now, on one side, we need as much help from outside as possible. Like if you're a developing country and you have people living abroad, you need their expertise. Don't get me wrong. The men's volleyball team from Suriname that just won the Caribbean Cup was coached by a Cuban through a mm. Cuban volleyball philosophy. It's a really interesting thing to understand that we actually had a Cuban that brought his philosophy and it works for us. It clearly works for us. Maybe even better than having a Dutch or a European coach that wants to play a certain system. Because it's closer to home and closer to the culture, the collectivism. Yeah, so but is is it really? So that's something to, to, to take in consideration. And when you translate that to how to run a country and getting the diaspora involved and getting people with Surinamese, like there are so many people who are not only, it's it's hard to call them diaspora because they have Surinamese passport. They live abroad and they invest and they want to be part of Suriname. But there's such so, so much of a cultural difference that it there's a barrier because you can't just say like, hey, I'm Surinamese. And I still am Surinamese, and you have to understand, it's, it goes two ways. Because the, the Surinamese person that's living abroad thinks totally different from Surinamese yeah. person living here. And the acceptance for the people locally, it's kind of harder to accept that, I, I would say. No, you, have to, you have to be able to understand each other's language. And that's why national culture is and national identity is so hard for us. Because aside from the fact that there's a difference in how you think when you live in a Western country like the Netherlands and US, just for, for ease of, of, of an example. And the way you think when you live in Suriname or in a developing country is completely different. Even for me, my thought process is completely different when I live in the Netherlands or in the US, versus, if I would live in the US or live in the Netherlands versus living in Suriname. The thought process is completely different. I'm quickly gonna dive in to, to this, this comment about Renzo. And Renzo has been getting a lot of heat for this. But this is, this is one of the hardest topics to talk about. So for those that don't know, Renzo Chanayu is, is a Surinamese swimmer. He's we also have an episode with him. Exactly. I think a year or two ago. So yeah. just search Renzo Chanayu on Convos. On social Convos and you'll find him. And in our interview, the interview that he did with us, he was very hesitant to bring up the issues that he really faced preparing for the last Olympics. So you have to understand, Renzo swam a personal best in, was it 2014? The Olympics of 2014 was really pushing. One is heat, was pushing. And Renzo was actually coached by Anthony Nesti before that Olympics. And he achieved... He didn't achieve as much as maybe he wanted to, but to what our expectations were, he definitely overachieved. In comparison with Jurgen Temer, who made the A limit, so got to the Olympics on his own, was in a heat with Usain Bolt and 
was not fully prepared for the Olympics the way he should have been because he had to scrap, he had to work to find money to be able to go to the Olympics, just not getting any support. So people have to understand that. So in 2014, Jorgen Temo, a 100-meter sprinter from Suriname, was the only one who didn't, who directly qualified and didn't need a wild card for the selection of Suriname. And he had to work and clean just to be able to afford to go to the Olympics. So while other athletes were prepping and getting ready to go to perform at their max, their absolute max, our best athlete for that year was working just to be able to make the payments to go to the Olympics. That kind of already tells the difference. So then Renzo goes into... Then Renzo goes into the 2008, 2008, 2000, it was 16, by the way, Olympics of 2016, not 2014. Then Renzo prepares in Suriname for the Olympics of 2021. Because of COVID, it jumped to 21. And he didn't want to say it because he was extremely grateful for the fact that he was able to press this in the best facilities that we have in Suriname. But the facility, facilities were not equipped to Olympic standards. So he could never, in his whole preparation, run an actual race in a swimming pool that was similar to the Olympic swimming pool. Which means in this preparation, even though Renzo himself for the previous Olympics did meet the direct qualification limits, he was not able to practice in a proper facility. And it's hard to say, but it's the truth. Now, after the Olympics, he moved to the Netherlands and started swimming there. And we saw immediate improvement. Within a year after the Olympics, he broke the national record multiple times. He became the Dutch champion. And he's now on a pace that's good enough to, on a good day, reach the top 16, maybe the final, at the Olympics, if he would swim for the Netherlands. If we would swim for Suriname, under the conditions, the training conditions that we have here, we don't have the $50,000 equipment that they use in the Netherlands to monitor how you move underwater, to make small adjustments that help you with half of a second, to be faster half of a second. We don't have that. So for him, first of all, the Dutch invested a lot of money into him for research and development purposes to get better. So that's one reason why he could be able, should be able to come out from Netherlands, even though it breaks our heart. And even breaks his heart because he wants to represent Suriname. But the opportunities that he's being provided are so much better in the Netherlands. And the second thing that is not being brought up, and I'm, I'm not sure it's, why it's not being brought up, because people don't consider that a real option. The Dutch have three swimmers that are capable of doing top 16 time on their perspective, speciality. And it happens to be the same. One is Kenzo Simmons, who's also basically from Surinamese descent. The second one is Renzo. And the third one is the Dutchman who actually swam in the Olympic finals the last time around in the Olympics, in the previous Olympics. 
So technically, they just need a fort, and then they could also do the 100-meter relay, which would make them an instant contender. So not only right. can Renzo have an opportunity to swim in the Olympic final, if the Dutch would play their cards right, he might be able to swim in two Olympic finals. And just the thought of that, for me personally, from an objective perspective, not from a, a patriotic perspective, but from an objective perspective, should be already enough to say like, hey, it's worth considering. But we get offended by the idea so much. But we're not being fair. Because if you look at Jair Chonefa, Jair Chonefa at the previous Olympics came in fourth. He was the first Surinamese athlete in the Olympic finals since Anthony Nest. We have to understand that Leticia Frista still has records. Leticia Frista has over 40 medals. Leticia Frista is like one of the biggest household names in Suriname and in the world of athletics. But she never ran an Olympic final. And Jair Chonefa was in the Olympic final. So people don't understand like it's, how special that is. Yeah, it, it's a different scaling, right? Or category in its own, yeah. basically, or on what you're known for. And how did he get there? Because the UCE, the, the, uh, the Cycling Federation, gave him a scholarship to train at their cycling center. So this, just to put in perspective what we're dealing here. So we're dealing in one hand with investments that are done by other countries instead of Suriname for athletes to be able to represent Suriname on the highest level. So that's one aspect. And the second aspect is when it comes to team sports, the dynamic is different because when you have people that have to come from everywhere in the world together and to unite, as being one team from one country, you need better chemistry. So here's the thing. Yeah, the Olympics is about, I'm definitely agreeing with it. It is about patriotism, not about individual success. But we have to dif differentiate between individual sports and team sports. So I think that's the biggest difference that we may have to make. So for individual sports, it's kind of easy. And that's interesting as well, because we have Ifanito... Ifanildo Metendaf, and we have Donovan Wissa, who are local Surinamese fighters that train and live in Suriname and are world champions. So for some sports, it's, it's possible to live in Suriname. Of course, Ifanildo does go to Thailand to practice there whenever he has a bout coming up. But in general, they live in Suriname and they do their sports in, in Suriname and they become world champions. So it's possible. But for other sports, especially when it comes to cycling, when it comes to swimming, there's a certain like plateau. And once you want to go up there, you need some kind of support from outside of our country. Yeah, because if I had to compare those types of sports that you mentioned, like the swimming, the athletic, the cycling, it's a non-context sport. It's basically you're performing versus another person basically on your individual peak performance. You cannot adapt to the other person, whereas a context sport like a martial arts or boxing, you basically can adapt to the other person. You can use their strengths or weaknesses against them. And likewise for yourself too. And I'm no professional martial artist, <laughs> but if, if you get knocked out to the, the right spot in your head with the right force, it doesn't matter how many much you train. One small mistake can make the difference from a winning and not. 
Whereas the microseconds that count in cycling, athletics, and swimming, it, 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 it's another level. That's why they need those facilities to measure every movement in your body, every fiber, how your blood pumps in your body. And, and I also the, think, the yeah, yeah, it's also a difference between sports that you have a winner, which is not decided by time, versus sports where you, the winner is decided by time, right? So to, to quickly close off this segment and go into the final segment of today's episode is the issue that we have in sports with being able to unify and bring teams together and decide what kind of culture do we want to play? Because that's one of the things. Of course, when you have professional athletes, in this, in this case, football players that play professionally at a higher level, the basic knowledge, the basic skill set of those players is better. But when you compete on a national level or international level, there's also a sense of chemistry that a team needs to have to be successful. And what kind of chemistry does that needs, need to be? And then you get into a little bit of a politics and how to run a country. Because within our country, we're suffering with the same thing. And that's that there are different national cultures within our national culture. So that makes it kind of difficult as well, if you understand what I mean with that. Yeah. And would it be fair to say you have, we have different ethnical cultures within the national culture? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can say that way. So when you understand that a country like Suriname, and we're quite extreme for a for developing country to have that many influences because we have former slaves, ethnicities from, 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 from the slavery period. We have okay, so workers. So uh, on that point, next, yeah. I, I want to bring one last point before we close up. In... One of the strengths that often gets brought up for us is the diversity, the mix and the, the distribution of the di diversity that we have here, right? It's often called something to be thankful for. It's kind of remarkable that we don't have that. You know, if you just had two ethnicities where one is has, has more power than the other or that's more rivalry. In that sense, how would you differ this multicultural or from something like the, the U.S. because they, they are also very a hotpot of multicultural, maybe not on a state level, but okay. that's also something that's you kind also of mentioned, you already mentioned, yeah. you already mentioned that the biggest divider in, in the U.S. is the left and the right, it's the Republicans and the Democrats, right? So basically that, the, that division between those two groups is so big that it kind of totally over, overshadows the ethnicities. So I think okay. that's the reason. So we could go that approach and create like a, this, this human right say communism kind of party. And then you have on the other side, you have the capitalistic party and you have the communism fighting against capitalists. And like all groups just start going like- I think they prefer socialist. I, I think yeah. they prefer socialist instead of communist. Yeah. it's. It's all almost like commun communism in a, in a sense. It's more for me. It's personally more communism than socialism, even if they call it socialism. I, I, but, but but yeah, may, like the main philosophical points are more communist than than socialist. But but it's true. But that's something that could happen. But we don't gravitate towards. I think one of the, the 
positives about how many cultures we and how many ethnicities we have is that we have a little bit more empathy towards other ethnicities, towards rituals, towards culture. We have we are more empathic. But one of the things that makes it more difficult is that in order to really grow, you have to align first. And it's really hard to align with when there are too many subsets. And I think that's the biggest issue. Like you can align easier if there are two, two trains of thought and you just decide which train of thought is better. But when you have like five to seven trains of thought, it becomes yeah. really hard to make decisions, yeah. Yeah. right? It just becomes really hard to make decisions. And we have to decide like, okay, it's great to have patriotism and patriotism is also different for different people. But if you want to go towards a national identity, you have to be okay with saying like, hey, we have to be vulnerable to understand that the way that we consume and the way that we think is not the only way and we have to go towards a nationalistic way. I know that if I go to certain parts, even of Paramaribo, that people would think that I'm an outsider. And when I start speaking them with them for longer than five minutes, they will understand. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah, you're local. He's, he's a local, right? And you still have to find, like, where's the common ground? And right now, we're not working towards common ground. We're just defending our differences. And on the one hand, we're lucky because that defending of differences is much smaller than in other countries. But we're still way too divided to really grow and really create a national identity. And that's something we don't talk about because it's hard, because it takes so mm, much It's time. confrontational. It's very confrontational. So we do have to think, what's our national identity? And to go full circle on this, right now we're focused on oil and gas. Like oil and gas is like the main focus. And then... Now and then we start realizing like, hey, carbon credits is a thing. We're the most forested country in the world. but In percentage. We, but in percentage. But we don't want to have the discussion like, hey, hold on a second. The national identity of oil and gas and the national identity of being the most forested country in the world. They, it's not, it's really... It's very... But yeah, it's very polar opposites. It's, it's very polar opposites. We don't have that conversation. We don't have the conversation <laughs> that even though we have so much success in sports right now, like sports is like has been for the last 10 years, the major topic of positive highlights. But we refuse to create a policy that embraces long-term Policy making for sports and support for sports. We we don't we don't commit to that. We don't take it as part of our national identity. We'll just watch people do brilliant stuff and say like, "Hey, we're proud of that." But we didn't contribute. We didn't contribute to Isam Asinga winning two medals at the South American Games. As a country, we had single contribution. We did have a very big contribution for Suriname winning the the Caribbean Cup because it was held in Suriname and people showed up and cheered for them and the crowd even though maybe the players from Suriname didn't feel it as much our opponents did feel it 
They mm-hmm. felt the hostile. It, it, it's, it's a moral thing. like. But we have to start considering, if we talk about national identity, that we should start building towards a national identity. Like, there's only one political party that I feel truly, well, there are two, but the other one people don't because it's so small at the moment. But there's really one party that that pushes the national identity agenda as part of, of their campaign, whereas mm-hmm. other political parties are much towards an ethical, an ethnic approach, much more towards certain smaller subsets and subgroups within our society. And we have to understand that policy-wise, we need to be much more integrated. Agreed, agreed. And it's it's hard, it's confrontational. And as we go back to the beginning, as we explored the Hofstede uh, framework on how the culture is formed, it's tough we need to think about and not just think about, have conversation about and to get that alignment. And that's usually the challenge with any community. Basically, you can see the natural country as a community on a larger scale and getting that alignment is always tough. But that should not keep us from trying and having a conversation. With that being said, this was another episode of Social Convos. As we mentioned in the beginning, follow us on YouTube, youtube.com slash at Convos. We're also on IG at Convos and Threads, if it's still alive, because the <laughs> IG account is linked to that. Not, not so optimistic on that. And also, in the meantime, if you check out our Substack, you can already subscribe at Convos.substack.com for some goodies. We're not going to spoil it yet, but just go there if you made it to the end of this episode and see what happens. With that being said, Shandok, blow us up. This was Social Comfort. I'm glad and Diego's glad that you joined us for a new episode. We hope to see you back here next week. Bye-bye. Swai swai.